We'll now be pleased to hear from our commencement speaker, Elder Craig C. Christensen. Elder Craig C. Christensen was sustained as a General Authority 70 of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in October 2002. At the time of his call, he was serving as a member of the Fifth Quorum of the Seventy in the Utah South area. Elder Christensen was named a member of the Presidency of the Seventy in August 2012. He currently has supervisory responsibilities in the Utah North, Salt Lake City, and Utah South areas. He also assists Elder Quentin L. Cook in supervising the Central America area and Elder Ronald A. Rasband in supervising the South America South area. As a general authority, Elder Christensen served as, a, as president of the Mexico South area from 2003 to 2007. Elder Christensen graduated from Brigham Young University with a bachelor's degree in accounting, having also played center on the BYU football team. He went on to earn a master's of, Master of Business Administration degree from the University of Washington. Over the years, he has been a visiting instructor of business and religion courses at several universities, including BYU. At the time of his call as a general authority, Elder Christensen was a self-employed businessman in the retail automotive, insurance, and real estate development industries. He previously worked as an executive with several privately owned companies and with an international accounting and consulting firm based in San Francisco. Elder Christensen and his wife, Deborah Jones, are the parents of four children. It is our honor to have him as our speaker at today's commencement exercises, Elder Christensen. My dear brothers and sisters, Sister Christensen and I are honored to share this special day with you. We love being back on campus at BYU and appreciate the gracious way we've been received today by Elder and Sister Clark and President Sister Worthen, as well as many others. As we arrived on campus, we had opportunity to shake a few of your hands and you could feel the excitement in the air. We pray that this day, Graduation Day, will become a beloved milestone in your lives one you look back on with a deep sense of accomplishment for many years to come. On an occasion similar to this one, Elder M. Russell Ballard noted that the longest commencement speech on record was delivered at Harvard University in the, er in the early 1800s. It lasted more than six hours and was delivered first in Latin and then in Greek and then in English. The shortest speech was given by Nell Smith, the former governor of the state of Wyoming. When called upon to speak, Governor Smith arose slowly, walked to the podium, scanned the rows and rows of graduates, and simply said in his down-home accent, You done real good. <laughs> he then turned around and sat down. <laughs> Since I do not speak Latin or Greek, and my desire is to be relatively brief, may I start by simply saying, You done real good. Like you, we recognize that you have been living and studying for the past several years in a very unique, even sacred environment, one that in many ways is quite unlike anything you will find in the world. For example, you have been able to share remarkable experiences with friends and colleagues, colleagues who embrace your same values. In this spiritually rich setting, you have exercised faith in Jesus Christ and have incorporated in your lives the highest possible standards of righteous living. You have also kept your own commitment to excellence, devoting long days and seemingly endless nights to studying and praying both academically and spiritually 
to enter a world that, quite frankly, needs you desperately. Your commitment to live the gospel of Jesus Christ and your willingness to form eternal families will ultimately influence everyone who comes to know you. Because of the foundation you have established while attending BYU, you are now prepared to go forth into the world and to make significant contributions in your chosen fields of study, in your families, and in the lives of Heavenly Father's children everywhere. There may be some who view this transition into the world with some trepidation. You may feel a little like Alma the Younger, who, after observing the moral state of affairs of his day, felt, and I quote, grieved for the iniquity of his people, yea, for the wars and the bloodsheds and the contention which were among them. Perhaps you can relate to the sorrow that Alma felt as you witnessed some of the events of today's world. For me, one of the keys of finding personal peace and a sense of purpose at times like these is to study how other faithful disciples, including Alma, responded to similar circumstances. Like you, Alma did not want to accept things as he found them or simply retreat from society and wait for things to change. Yet he also didn't want to overreact or take matters into his own hands. He sought for and received guidance from the Holy Ghost. Then, under the direction from the Spirit, he went to work. His response was to teach and minister to others and to stand as a witness of God at all times and in all places. Alma's indomitable faith in the Savior gave him confidence to do as Nephi had done, to go and do the things which the Lord had commanded. I also find it instructive that, with all that was needed in the world around him, Alma gave priority to ministering to his own family. On at least one occasion, Alma's sorrow for the iniquity of his people and his desire to do something about it led him almost instinctively to cause that his sons should be gathered together that he might give unto them every one his charge separately concerning the things of righteousness. The admonitions that Alma gave to his three sons, Helaman, Shiblon, and Corianton, found in Alma chapters 36 through 42, are some of the most powerful and touching examples of fatherly counsel found in Scripture. Now, I do not know how old Alma's sons were when he gathered them together, yet I suspect that they were about your same age. He indicated that they were in their youth, and at least two of them were recently returned missionaries. I also don't know whether Alma had any daughters, although if he did, it is reasonable to think his counsel to them would have been similar to the counsel he gave his son. So as I have pondered what I might share with you today, I felt impressed to review four of the most prominent admonitions of Alma to his sons. As we review these key principles, I pray that you will feel that Heavenly Father is speaking directly to you, his sons and his daughters, giving you the essential guidance to help you for whatever your futures may hold. First and foremost, Alma wanted his sons to learn to trust the Lord. I do know, he told Helaman, that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials, in their troubles, in their afflictions, and shall be lifted up in the last day. Learning to trust in the Lord, even in the midst of trials and afflictions, is the way we manifest our love for Him and the key to finding true happiness in this life and in the life to come. 
Alma knew this from personal experience, for he had been thrown in prison, mocked, and spat upon for preaching the gospel. Notwithstanding, Alma never lost his faith, and he wanted his sons to learn from his example. He shared with them this simple yet certain testimony. I have been supported under trials and troubles of every kind, yea, and in all manner of afflictions. Yea, and I do put my trust in him, and he will and shall deliver me. Alma's testimony reminds me of the optimism and faith expressed by President Gordon B. Hinckley as he spoke of putting our trust in God, and I quote, It isn't as bad as you sometimes think it is. It all works out. I say that to myself every morning. Put your trust in God and move forward with faith and confidence in the future. If you will put your trust in Him, if you'll pray to Him, if you'll live worthy of His blessings, He will hear our prayers. My dear friends, I invite you to consider how you will demonstrate your trust in God throughout your lives. What will you do to show God that you trust Him above everything else, above your own wisdom and especially above the wisdom of the world? Placing our trust in God means, as Alma taught his sons, that we do not boast of our own wisdom or our own strength, rather that we counsel with the Lord in all our doings and we let all our doings be unto the Lord. As you do this, you will discover that in the strength of the Lord you can do all things. Perhaps I should share a personal example. Several years ago, when I returned to church headquarters after serving in Mexico, I was assigned a parking stall directly behind the space reserved for Elder Richard G. Scott. Often, as I parked my car in the morning, I noticed Elder Scott sitting in his car with his head bowed, praying one more time before he entered the office. Why? Because he trusted in the Lord. He knew he needed Heavenly Father's help and guidance. Elder Scott's example has changed how I start my day. Now when I arrive at work, I spend a few moments in prayer, expressing my trust in the Lord and pleading that my activities that day will be in accordance with His mind and will, that I'll remember who I am and act accordingly, and that He will be mercifully, that He will mercifully fill in the gaps where I fall short. This daily expression has been a meaningful experience for me. Clearly, my trials and challenges have not been as severe as Alma suffered through. Yet I can add my testimony to his that those that truly that God truly does support those who put their trust in Him. The second powerful example or admonition from Alma is found in these words: "O remember, my son, and learn wisdom in thy youth. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God." I'm interested in the fact that Alma connected learning wisdom and being obedient to the commandments of God. Besides the obvious fact that it's wise to keep the commandments, through obedience we become worthy to receive the Holy Ghost. And it is through the Holy Ghost that we are taught wisdom from on high. Alma also taught that wisdom is not just for those who have years of experience. His counsel was to seek wisdom in thy youth. It has been said that we pay for our schooling, but wisdom cannot be purchased. Wisdom comes from life's experience and from sacred experiences with the Holy Ghost. As you continue your lifelong effort to learn wisdom, remember these priorities established by the Lord. Seek not for riches but for wisdom, and behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you. 
And then shall you be made rich. Behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. In other words, you didn't come to BYU merely to increase your earning power. You came to learn wisdom, to learn the mysteries of God, which requires much more than secular learning. It requires that we obey the voice of the Lord and keep His commandments. Let me hasten to say that this doesn't mean that you shouldn't or won't be prosperous. I'm also taught his sons that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. Remember, however, that prosperity must never take priority over obedience. We must never compromise the things we know to be true, and we must always live our lives according to the spiritual laws upon which these eternal blessings are predicated. Given the perilous times in which we live where sin is now being normalized or even celebrated, Alma teaches us not only to develop a spirit of obedience, but also to develop what he calls an everlasting hatred against sin and iniquity. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are charged to love all people, even those mired in sin, but we resist anything that will put our spiritual lives in jeopardy. In other words, our spiritual antennae must be high and finely tuned so that through the Holy Ghost we can distinguish between activities that are virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy and, and activities that are not. Where we should engage, anxiously engage, and where we should just turn our backs and walk away. The third point we learn from Alma is to bridle all our passions. We often view this charge as counsel associated with the law of chastity. It is interesting to note that when Alma gave this charge, he was not speaking to Corianthan, his son who was, had fallen into sin, but to Shiblon, his steady son, who was faithful and obedient. When speaking of passions, Alma was referring to all our passions—our intense energy, our enthusiasm, our determination, and our zeal for life. Passion, in this sense, is a good thing. It motivates our daily act efforts, strengthens our vision, and drives us to succeed. As the French philosopher Denis Diderot said, only passions, great passions, can rise the soul to great things. Alma himself was a very passionate person, passionate in particular about the gospel, and certainly bold in declaring it. Then why the counsel to his sons to bridle their passions? I can't help but wonder if Alma didn't see a bit of himself and his sons—intelligent, energetic young men who needed on occasion to be warned against letting boldness become overbearance or being lifted up in pride and boasting of their own talents and abilities. Perhaps he saw in them abundant spiritual energy that, in order to be effective in the service of the Lord, needed to be properly controlled or channeled. The image of a bridle is an interesting one. While horses today are used mostly for recreation, there was a time when owning a horse was essential to daily life. Humans could see early on that these powerful creatures could be quite useful in accomplishing difficult work, but they needed a way to harness or control their power. A bridle became the way to direct the horse's head and control its activities. It's not that people resented the horse's power or wanted to limit it in any way. To the contrary, they wanted to maximize it, focus it, direct it, and put it to its very best use. 
Can you see why Alma was trying, what Alma was trying to teach his sons when he said, bridle all your passions? He was telling them to limit or not to limit or smother their passions. He was simply expressing that he ne- they needed to be harnessed or controlled. Heavenly Father wants us to be bold and passionate about important things. He wants us to love the truth, and he values youthful energy and enthusiasm. But he also wants to help us channel this energy into righteous work. He wants us to be boldly committed to doing good in the world, using our talents to accomplish His eternal purposes, rather than wasting them on things that really do not matter much. May I share an interesting example? This comes from a talk given by Elder Paul B. Piper at BYU-Idaho over three years ago, long before Pokemon Go became a frenzy. An interesting tactic, said Elder Piper, the adversary employs in this generation is to channel men's natural ambition to work and achieve into dead ends. God placed in young men the desire to compete and achieve with the intent that they would use this ambition to become faithful providers for a wife and a family. In our youth, this ambition can be channeled into academic, athletic, or other pursuits that help teach persistence, discipline, and work. However, Satan would subtly intercept that ambition and channel it into a virtual world of video games that eat up time and ambition. No matter how hard you play a video game, no matter what score you get, virtual work can never bring you the satisfaction that accompanies real work. Now, I'm sure you can think of other examples where God-given gifts are hijacked by Satan to ensure that they are either diluted or rendered useless or used in activities with no eternal value. On the other hand, there are many causes that desperately need our interest and committed efforts. Consider, for example, the many important moral and social issues facing our families, our nations, and society in general. Some of these include the role of parents and families, the sanctity of marriage, the right to worship and exercise one's religion, the the harmful effects of pornography, the best way to care for the poor and needy, and many other important issues. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ sheds considerable light on all these issues. As men and women with testimonies of the gospel and a clear understanding of God's plan of happiness, we can make unique unique and vital contributions in all of these areas. To be frank, the world desperately needs our voices, our impassioned voices, in these conversations. Without them, the discussions almost always go the wrong direction, and we'll wake up one day wondering how things had slipped so far. We can make a difference. But our lives, our talents, and our passions must be focused on things that really matter. Finally, in fourth, the fourth admonition of Alma comes from this counsel to his sons. Behold, I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. Several years ago, in this same setting, I shared an example of a family who lived close to a large amusement park. They would drive by the park often, and each time their young son would ask, Daddy, can we go there? I really want to go there and play on all the rides. Their father would try and deflect the question by simply saying, Maybe tomorrow we can go. This little interchange repeated itself week after week until finally, early one Saturday morning, 
the boy came running into his parents' bedroom. He jumped on the bed, startling both of them, and exclaimed with great enthusiasm, Daddy, tomorrow is today. This interesting play on words, tomorrow is today, illustrates a valuable point. Commencement ceremonies naturally point to the future, to the exciting opportunities ahead, and to everything you hope to accomplish, but to a great extent, your success in life and how you prepare for the responsibilities that will ultimately be yours is the accumulation of the small and simple things you do each and every day. No matter what your ambitions for the future are, you achieve them step by step, one day at a time. In this sense, tomorrow truly is today. An example of the small and simple things may be helpful. Dr. Truman G. Madsen, who passed away several years ago, was a beloved professor here at BYU. When he and sister Madsen were newlyweds, Truman was pursuing a Ph.D. in philosophy at Harvard University. His young bride, Anne, trying to earn enough money to pay the bills, took a job at a local bank. One evening, she returned home from, a work, from work exhausted and found Truman reading the Doctrine and Covenants instead of studying for an important test he had the next morning. What, she explained, why aren't you studying for your classes? Why should I be working to support you in your graduate studies if you're only going to study the scriptures? Truman responded by sitting Anne down and quietly explaining that the more he studied philosophy, the more he needed to study the revelations of the prophet Joseph Smith. You cannot study philosophy, he said, on an empty stomach. How thankful we are that Brother Madsen was able to keep that balance. Not only did he graduate with his Ph.D. and his testimony of the gospel, but he also dedicated his life in helping others to learn to strike that same balance, to learn by study and also by faith. His dedication to the small and simple things, like consistently studying the scriptures, made a big difference in his life and in the lives of many of us. As you consider the miracles that occurred in Alma's life, as you look to what you hope to accomplish in the future, please take time to plan out the small and simple things you will do each day to bring about your own mighty work. These simple acts, including your personal devotion to daily prayer and to scripture study, will contribute to your long-term happiness and your ultimate success in life. You will witness the hand of the Lord as He works His miracle in you an active part of his effort to bring about his great and eternal purposes. My dear graduates, there are so many more things I could share with you from Alma's counsel. May I simply conclude with one more line from Alma that seems to be appropriate today. And now I trust that I, have, I shall have great joy in you because of your steadiness and your faithfulness unto God. For as you have commenced in your youth, to look to the Lord your God, even so I hope that you will continue. Of the many emotions you are surely feeling today, I hope that the foremost is a sense of the great love your Heavenly Father has for you, His spiritual children. He is pr proud of what you have accomplished so far, and His earnest desire is to see you continue as you have commenced, in the path that leads to the tree of life. He has given you an abundance of blessings to help you along the way, the opportunity to pray to Him, to talk with Him, the gift of the Holy Ghost as a constant companion, His counsel in the words of Scripture, the living prophets, 
and your own patriarchal blessings, temple ordinances and covenants that endow you with power from on high, and above all, the matchless gift of his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As a witness of him, I assure you that he stands at the door ready for you to invite him in to your lives as never before. Take his yoke upon you, learn of him, and make a firm resolve today to follow Alma's admonition, to put your trust in him, to keep his commandments, to bridle all your passions, and to attend to the small and simple things of life. As you do this, you will see his miracle in your lives, and you will find true happiness in the years ahead. I testify that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who sponsors this university and much of your education here, is his church and kingdom on the earth. President Thomas S. Monson is his living prophet. Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Redeemer. His Father is our Father. Their promises to you are certain and will be realized as you continue with faith in them. May this faith grow and direct your lives is my humble prayer, and I share that with you in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.